My name is Andrew Kays, and I'm the pastor at Emmanuel Evangelical Lutheran Church of Paynes Point. That's in rural Oregon, Illinois. You're about to hear me preach. Now, this episode was recorded during the COVID-19 pandemic, during which time public worship has been disrupted. We don't have it every Sunday. Therefore, all sermons have been recorded ahead of time to make them available online. Unless otherwise noted, all scripture is NRSV, used under the gratis policy of the copyright holder, the National Council of Churches. Our first reading comes from Galatians, the fifth chapter, where Paul writes, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for self-indulgence, but through love become slaves to one another. For the whole law is summed up in a single commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. If, however, you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. Live by the Spirit, I say, and do not gratify the desires of the flesh. For what the flesh desires is opposed to the Spirit, and what the Spirit desires is opposed to the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to prevent you from doing what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit you are not subject to the law. Now the works of the flesh are obvious, fornication, impurity, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, anger, quarrels, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. I am warning you, as I warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. By contrast, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against such things. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also be guided by the Spirit. Here ends the reading. The Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, the ninth chapter. When the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him. On their way, they entered a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him, but they did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. When his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. Then they went on to another village, and as they were going along the road, someone said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. 
Jesus said to him, No one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. This is the gospel of our Lord. Grace and peace to you, sisters and brothers in Christ. Well, we've finally arrived. I guess we can't really use finally uh, today because it was only last week that I mentioned as a way to introduce this season that we're now in, the season we will be in through the rest of summer and into the fall, that I mentioned Jesus would set his face toward Jerusalem. And it's an important section in Luke, a section that we will spend a lot of the summer in. In Luke, these 10 chapters or so are mostly unique to the Gospel of Luke. They emphasize discipleship, and of course, they document Jesus' journey toward Jerusalem. It's already implied in this text right up front that that's where he will be taken up. Maybe we mean taken up on the cross. Maybe we mean taken up into heaven. But in either event, that's where the journey will end. These encounters along the way are going to prompt us with the same sorts of questions over and over when we reflect on the gospel this season. There's the constant question, of course, whenever we interpret scripture, we've got to ask, what's the context within the story? And how does that compare to ours? And then from there, these texts in particular will prompt us to ask about our discipleship. What might God be calling you to today in light of texts like this one? Right out the gate. The cost is high. The weight is heavy. When Jesus says he has no place for his head, that doesn't sound like a great life. He will never settle down again. His journey to Jerusalem will be interrupted by sleep, of course, but he will never again sleep in what he regards as his own home. That's quite a cost to following Jesus. Along the way, the momentum of the movement will seem like it's building up. Person after person will approach Jesus and offer, in some form or fashion, to be a disciple, to be a follower, a student, and so on. And yet, Jesus will push in a way that swings the momentum against them. The cost will be so high that many of them will not come along. And in fact, many who had been following Jesus will fall away by the time he gets to Jerusalem. So after this remark about how they won't be stopping again, as to imply to the first new potential disciple, as to what's about to happen to Jesus, to the second Jesus approaches this potential disciple and says, follow me. Now, this person quite reasonably says he will go, but first he has to go back and bury his father. But Jesus dismisses that idea. It's not time for that. It's time to proclaim the kingdom of God. Then to a third potential disciple, uh, who says he will follow, but in this case, he wants to go back just to say goodbye to his family. But again, Jesus basically says, no, anybody who commits but looks back is not fit for that kingdom of God. So three potential disciples right there up front as soon as Jesus sets his face toward Jerusalem, and each is met with similar overlapping instructions. Like once you're committed to this, once you're on the road, there's no going back. His face is toward Jerusalem. That's where we are going. That's the next big stop, and it'll be here sooner than they think, and it will be bigger than they seem to think. See, the instructions overlap in that Jesus, for each of them, emphasizes the urgency of what's happening by way of how soon the crucifixion will be. 
in their context, the cost, the weight, the urgency, it's so heavy that the call to be a disciple is severe. And as severe as this all sounds, when we contextualize it in that way, it maybe doesn't feel quite so severe for us because we're not headed toward Jerusalem, right? So if I'm going to tell you that even though Jesus sounds very harsh in this text, he's not being that harsh with you, well, that bears hanging with for a few more moments. If this person turns back to have a funeral for his father, he will miss the proverbial boat. By the time he is done, Jesus will be gone, and he won't be slowing down. He won't be turning around. He won't be stopping. He's not going to be waiting for anyone to catch up, no matter how important their business had been. We see then an increase to the cost of severity, excuse me, an increase in the severity of the cost of discipleship. Okay, right from the start of this text, we got to actually back it up, right? Because this didn't start with potential disciples. It started with James and John, two existing disciples, two of the apostles even. And what's the cost for them? Well, Jesus forbids them from wishing fire to rain down upon those who had rejected him. The cost of discipleship there in that interaction is to just don't be hostile. Don't wish ill on our enemies. Okay, that's easy enough. And then to the second, note again, Jesus says he has no place to lay his head. The cost there is that they will be on the move until the movement ends. But we know that won't be that long. So a bit of a harder thing to commit to, but still easy enough. To the third then, because there's no stopping this train, he literally has to forsake something as important as burying his own father. That's a pretty heavy cost. But given the context, it can't be any other way. Of the thousands who will or were either following Jesus already or will consider following him now, at least a few will have pressing, important matters to tend to. And they simply can't do both. They can't follow Jesus and tend to those important matters. There's no time for them. And then finally, to the third potential disciple, the fourth encounter in this brief text, he doesn't even have time to go back and say goodbye. Even something as expedient as a quick hello, goodbye, there's no time for that. This call from Jesus, as severe as it sounds, is rooted, that severity is rooted in urgency. We're left to imagine, when would God lay a call upon our hearts that has that level of urgency? Sure, our context doesn't match their context, but there's some urgency for us. Maybe we could turn to the other Gospels. We could see what they emphasize. And their emphases, in fact, do illuminate some urgencies in our discipleship. For example, we only get exposed to the gospel so many times, so we only get so many chances to really hear it and let it envelop our lives. Or we might find the urgency of Judgment Day, that at our deaths and or Jesus' return, it'll be time's up. Or we might hear how enemies of the gospel, both worldly and otherworldly, seek to undermine our relationship with God. For Luke, however, I would argue that the emphasis is instead on opportunity. 
Consider what's unique to Luke. When the prodigal son returns home. When the good Samaritan passes by. When Lazarus begs at the rich man's door. When the lepers are given the chance to thank Jesus. The parables which are, and and encounters for that matter, which are unique to Luke, are about whom do we notice? Especially who do we notice when they are in desperate need? And then how do we respond? Imagine if every Christian, and every well-intentioned human being for that matter, up and decided that today is just not a great day to do anything charitable. And perhaps not this week, not this month, maybe not even this year. How much suffering would that level of indifference unleash into the world? The amount of damage we can do by simply failing to see those in need is extraordinary. Perhaps the urgency of the call, the cost of the hesitation, for us today in our context, that cost doesn't always fall on us. Sometimes it falls on others. But as we see time and again, the commandment which summarizes the law, along with loving God, is to love our neighbor. And loving our neighbor means acting now. Now, on the one hand, we can minimize the cost of discipleship in this reading because we don't share the same type of urgency that they did. We can still bury the dead. We can still maintain our relationships with friends and family. But on the other hand, if we excuse ourselves of any urgency at all, then the cost of our hesitation will fall on others too. And then maybe whether we were disciples at all is called into question. We should let ourselves feel that urgency, even with our different context. It's worth noting at this point, too, that if ever you should have an encounter with the risen Christ or be called by the Spirit of God, that the same urgency conveyed here should take hold in you. Once you know God has called you to do something, it's time to act. No matter what else is going on, it's time to move. Now, very quickly, and to wrap up this morning, I I just alluded to our Galatians reading. Another detail about how the summer works is, and it's a detail worth remembering, is that the New Testament texts are laid out in series, like a series from this book, from that book, and they may or may not match the theme of the day. We are going along in Galatians, and it kind of matches the theme of the day, this urgency of discipleship that we see in our other texts. It does so by outlining a bit of what it means to be a disciple. And to briefly remind you of this context, the early church struggled with exactly how to embrace God's grace. On the one hand, you could assume you're forgiven of every sin before you've so much as committed it. And if you think that way, you may find yourself behaving disgracefully, destructively, divisively. But on the other hand, if you assume you can't really be too sure about God's grace and really hold up one or two laws as if they were conditions to God's grace, then Well, you've essentially removed grace from the equation. And Paul calls the early church into balance between those two extremes. For the Galatians, the concern was the too much law, not enough grace. Other teachers had come along and told the non-Jewish Christians in that community that, if only to be safe, they probably need to keep Jewish law. 
That includes getting circumcised, it includes the dietary laws, don't eat pork, shellfish, etc. And Paul clarifies in our reading today this balance. There is, in fact, some boundaries. There are some bounds to appropriate, honorable behavior among Christians. Avoid the particularly perverse, avoid the particularly debaucherous, and so on. But more to the point, there is that which the Spirit calls us to do. Not just avoid this, but actually do that. If our covenantal relationship with God isn't fleshly, doesn't have to do with food or circumcision, then it's spiritual. And what does the Spirit call us to do? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So if today, hearing that urgency of discipleship, the idea of giving up some bad behavior feels like too great a cost. If today the idea of giving up, you name it, home, family, anything you own, everything you own, feels too great a cost, lean into that which the Spirit is calling you to add. Embrace patience and peace. Be kind. Try to be more loving. Be gentle. Be generous. And control yourself as you commit to those whom and that which you are called to tend. The cost of discipleship for you today may not mean abandoning everything you know on your way to the cross, and it's coming soon. But there is a cost in there somewhere. Find it and give it up. Because whatever God calls you to, through these texts or in these experiences, in your encounters with the risen Christ, that cost is always worth paying. There's no need to hesitate, feel that sense of urgency, and get moving. Amen. Thanks for listening. I pray God spoke to you in some way. A quick note at the end here, which you can skip if you've heard it before. The audio of my sermons does not always include proper citations. While I do some self-study and lean on my seminary education, I also lean on my colleagues with whom we have a regular text study. I also use Luther Seminary's Working Preacher website and their podcast, Sermon Brainwave. Some credit is due to at least one of those sources. Wherever you are, whenever you hear this, please be well. Take care of yourself and each other, and have a great rest of the week.